What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 What's stopping? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? you, you. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, we are back with you. It is EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. This program is for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? We're here to get that question answered, and here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN, if you have a question about the Catholic faith, 833-288-3986. Are you listening to us outside of North America? Perhaps you're listening in New Zealand? Well, we've got a phone number just for you. Please dial 1-205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email, the address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Berry is our producer. Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both of those platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in Studio One. Hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How is your Advent going, sir? Uh, You know, it's it's, it's chugging along. How about yours? Good. It's actually uh, quite good. It makes you slow down and think a little bit instead of just shopping, 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 food, food, food. It's like, slow down there, pal. I think think that's an important thing, especially in this very busy era that we find ourselves in. Well, I hate shopping, but I like food. So I'm more like food, food, food and not shopping, shopping, shopping. Try to keep that in mind. Here's an interesting question from Nick who says, first of all, thanks for all you do. Here's my question. I'm 31. 31, excuse me, 31 years old, married, two children, and a stepchild. I was a non-denominational pastor for the last several years. I received my master's in divinity from a Protestant seminary in 2022. My family and I recently moved to Kentucky from New Jersey. Because of this move, I had to give up that ministry position in New Jersey. I felt like this freed me up to grow deeper in my faith. In this freedom, I keep coming back to Catholicism. I decided to visit a Catholic church this past Sunday, and I loved it. My wife, not so much. Given the situation and my education, how would you recommend that I proceed? Thank you, Nick. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate the question. So you have to follow your conscience. Yeah. And that's the root of it. Yeah. And and I'm a convert to the Catholic faith. I also have a Master of Divinity. Well, I don't have a Master's of Divinity degree, but I have a Master's degree from Protestant Seminary. Um, I thought I was going to be in Protestant ministry. That's where I was headed in my life, and and uh, the Lord took me in a totally different direction. And uh, so I'm appreciative of your situation. And in my own journey, there was a period of my life when I came to believe that the Catholic faith was true, that it was the Church founded by Christ, um, and that I couldn't be spiritually or intellectually fulfilled in any other communion, and yet I didn't join mm. because I had family members that did not want me to. And that that uh, that liminal space in my life, that intermediate time, was really bad in a lot of ways and uh, because I wasn't following my conscience. And so I kept going to the Presbyterian Church, but I was completely disengaged because I didn't believe it. You must have been miserable. It was a pretty sad time. I mean, I found myself—I had really almost—I felt like I had no choice but to almost sort of disengage from the whole spiritual quest altogether because— mm. 
I wasn't going to be a fulfilled Presbyterian. I, yeah. I, I'd come to believe that it was untrue, and yet I, I couldn't live fulfilled as a Catholic, and so I, I was kind of stuck, and I wasn't much good for anybody. It was just kind of a lump, you know? And my wife, who was not really excited about me becoming Catholic, eventually said, well, David, you might as well just go ahead and become Catholic, because you're kind of useless now. You know, go follow your conscience. And it was kind of a, it was like, well, I guess you better go follow your conscience. It wasn't, <laughs> she wasn't happy about it, you know. But, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and that actually, she kind of gave me permission to go become Catholic. Now, she eventually followed me into the Catholic Church, but, uh, and became happy about it. But, but it was a difficult time. So if you, if you don't follow your conscience, you're not going to be good for anybody. Mm. Uh, that's number one. Uh, but you also have to respect your wife's conscience. And if she's not in the same place that you are, then uh, you, you really can't try to force her uh, or you're going to do a great deal of harm and uh, and be very patient and gentle and kind with her and love her and show her that your Catholic faith makes you a better person, not a worse one, one that's more attentive, more loving, more patient, more kind, uh, not more bombastic and demanding, mm, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and in terms of exploring the Catholic faith, uh, EWTN is a great resource to learn more about the faith. Uh, if you haven't started reading the Fathers of the Church, start reading the Fathers of the Church, especially St. Augustine. Um, you know, check out the EW10 Religious Catalog for a, a, a wonderful uh, opportunity to find good books to read on the Catholic faith. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and call and ask us any questions you got. We'd love to answer them. And love to talk with you, Nick. Uh, do give us a call sometime, and uh, you may want to bookmark that website, EWTN.com. There is a wealth of information just for you. Interesting question here from Carol, who normally listens to us in Atlanta on the Quest. What is church teaching on Luke 17? As a former Protestant, I heard a lot about the rapture, never bought into that teaching. Is Jesus telling the early disciples to free from Jerusalem, to flee from Jerusalem before the fall in 70 AD, or is it for our current times? Um, yeah, I appreciate the question. Well, clearly, uh, Christ had the um, had the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. in mind, mm-hmm. uh, and and so did the gospel writers because they they give pretty clear signs that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and et cetera et cetera, and of course these things did in fact happen exactly as Christ said, and the Christians in Jerusalem uh, fled for the hills. I mean they remembered the words of Christ and they got the heck out of Dodge. So I mean obviously he is speaking about 70 A.D. Uh, the question: What relevance does that have for today? Well, I mean, uh, there, there are other apocalyptic texts in the New Testament. I'm sure you know them, and the Thessalonian correspondence is filled with them, and, and the book of Revelation, of course, is a one big, fat, apocalyptic uh, nightmare, honestly, you know, <laughs> and uh, lots of things about the end of time. Um, and and the, the traditional Catholic view is, is not so much to look for, um, you know, the specifics uh, of fulfilled prophecy in the contemporary events around us, the way dispensational Protestants do. And Catholics that have tried that over the years have all been proven wrong, I mean, as have Protestant groups. Every every group in history that's ever said, oh, this is happening in the presidency or in Congress or in Russia or in, you know, you name it, or in the papacy, this must be the end of time. They've all been wrong, yeah. right? Because here we still are, and all yep. those prophecies have failed. Yeah. Um, St. Augustine, as you probably know, read read the apocalyptic passages of the New Testament as really characterizing the whole church age. Oh, okay. So so there's always, you know, St. John speaks about there are many antichrists. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's always something that can speak to those apocalyptic expectations in view of which we should get our life right. Carol, thanks for listening to us in Atlanta on The Quest. What a great radio station that is. In a moment, we'll talk with Mac in Seattle. Lines are open for you as well at 833 288 EWTN for call to communion. Stay with us. 
It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Phone lines are open for you right now if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. Love to talk with you. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, new from EWTN Publishing, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis. Now, you may remember that back in the day, Mother had a television series called Biblical Spirituality. Well, that's that uh, provided a lot of the meat for this book. Through her personal accounts and down-to-earth reflections that Mother is pretty pretty famous for, you will enter, in the, enter into each passage experiencing God's love and guidance like never before. Mother's life lessons will show you how to stop looking back in order to look ahead and how to enjoy the promises of God. You'll see the importance of consulting the Lord in all things, not just some things, all things, and the power of your prayers in helping convert sinners, even at the last moment of their lives. This book is powerful, and uh, you'll get a lot out of it. Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. I do believe it would make a wonderful Christmas gift for a couple of people on your Christmas list. Uh, list. Again, EWTNRC.com. RC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Mac in Seattle, listening to us on YouTube. Hey there, Mac. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, guys. How you doing? Happy Great. Advent. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. Um, so um, I was just going through the catechism of the Catholic Church, and it talks it talks about uh, the uh, scandal on how you can get to affect... Um, your fellow brothers and sisters into falling into sin. And um, um, I have a few friends who are trying to think of uh, doing a business venture, getting into like uh, a restaurant but has a doubles up as a bar. And I was just thinking of the moral implication of that and yeah. if it's right for a Catholic to own a, a, a business that sells alcohol. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So it, it is absolutely acceptable for Catholics to invest in businesses that serve alcohol. And in fact, we have we have a long list of patron saints of brewers and vinters and wine growers and bartenders <laughs> and innkeepers. Sure all, do. You know, and uh, St. Amandus, for example, is a patron of all of those brewers, ah. innkeepers, bartenders, vine growers, vineyards, and oddly enough, the Boy Scouts. Uh, okay. <laughs> so go figure. We're right? not going to draw a connection uh, there. No. Uh, St. Augustine, one of my own favorite heroes, is w- is one of the patron saints of brewers. You know, right? Beautiful. Yeah. Um, you, you may be aware that there is a long tradition of Benedictine and Cistercian um, uh, monasteries that support themselves by the brewing of beer. Um, uh, you know, Cistercian ale is prized throughout the world. It's good stuff. Uh, yep, it is. So, uh, uh, so the the production and 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 reasonable use of alcohol uh, is a very long tradition within the Catholic faith, and that's acceptable. Now. Um, uh, obviously, drunkenness is considered by the church to be a sin, and so uh, you know a good bartender is not going to. And this is, of course, you know, a legal requirement as well. Yeah, uh, is going to know when to say no, and and to help unruly customers on their way, mm-hmm. uh, gently but firmly. Um, and so every business should be conducted in a moral fashion, but to serve alcohol in and of itself is not intrinsically immoral. Hope that's helpful for you, Mac. Thanks so much for your call. And that opens up a line for you right now at 
833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon in Advent here on EWTN Radio. Here's a question now from Matthew in London. Dear Tom and Dr. Anders, I struggle to unite God's omniscience with man's free will and how he can make any truly autonomous decisions. I also struggle with the church prescription of predestination and how this does not automatically prescribe a double predestination. That is to say, if a lot of people are knowingly predestined for heaven, that doesn't mean the other lot are predestined for hell. To me, this is especially worrisome because I have seen some Calvinist debaters really embrace this conclusion. Rather than open a whole can of worms, I wanted to ask if the Calvinist position on predestination is permitted in the Catholic worldview. I anticipate you'll immediately raise an objection on how this violates justice regarding those predestined to hell, but is this not an inescapable conclusion given that the saved are predestined. Many thanks. Be sure of my prayers for EWTN's ministry. And again, that's from Matthew in London. Thank you, Matthew. You raise several different questions. The easiest one to dispense with is the omniscience claim. Uh, The idea that God's omniscience uh, frustrates our free will has been raised many times in history. Uh And the Catholic position is, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And uh, to see why, uh, you can have foreknowledge of an event without causing it. I mean that that's just true. I mean that is just true. Like you know when uh, when certain football teams play, you know who's gonna win. Oh right? yeah. You don't cause the win, but yeah. you know who's gonna come sure. out on top. You know, um, if I uh, if I go home and I offer um, you know my son uh, tiramisu or um, or say um, you know a bowl of my homemade lentils, <laughs> I have perfect foreknowledge about which he's going to choose. Me too. <laughs> right. I have perfect knowledge. And it ain't going to be the lentils. No, you know. no. Um, didn't mean I caused it. So uh, uh, Boethius uses this illustration. He says, imagine a king who is watching a parade from a tower, and he can see the beginning of the parade. He can see the end of the parade. If you're on the ground floor, so to speak, you see the parade go by one one you know, one rank at a time. Right, right. But from a certain vantage point, you can take the entire thing in in a single permanent instant. And that that kind of relative relationship is the way you should conceive of God and uh, and his knowledge of eternity, past, present, and future. He sees all things in a single permanent instant. It doesn't necessarily mean that he causes uh, the mechanical interactions uh, of cause and effect within that system. Now, the providence and predestination are a little bit trickier. I, I grant you that. Um, there are some really major distinctions between the Calvinist doctrine of predestination and the Catholic, and let me enumerate some of them. So uh, it's not just the fact of God's choice. Right? Calvinists believe, first of all, that the grace that God grants to the elect is irresistible, um, uh, and that once granted, uh, that it cannot be lost, and so the saints will necessarily persevere to the end, and that they can have infallible knowledge of their own election. Hmm. Right. Those are all things that the Catholic Church denies. Uh, church teaches that grace uh, is not forced, but requires our free cooperation in order to be activated, so to speak. Um, it can be resisted, uh, that it can be lost, um, and, that, uh, and that we don't have infallible knowledge of whether we're in the state of grace. And so from, 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 
there are some real practical consequences that flow from that. When I was a Presbyterian and a Calvinist, uh-huh. and I persuaded myself that I was infallibly certain of my own election, it meant that I placed myself on one side of the of the divine ledger and most of the rest of the world on the other. And I knew where I stood, and I knew where they stood at least now. And I, you know, could hold myself into a in a position of a kind of superiority, as it were, right? Like the fundamentalist Bible song I used to sing with kids in camp: "One door and only one." and yet its sides are two, I'm on the inside, on which side are you? <clears throat> this is something that Cardinal Newman put his finger on, if you ever read his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which I re- highly recommend, uh, that struck him as uh, as kind of obscene about the Calvinism in which he had been raised. And so a point very different from the Catholic, that the Catholic shades this uh, this awful antagonism between the absolutely good and the absolutely evil and the, the elect and the damned and doesn't claim to put himself in one camp or the other and, 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 and doesn't know, right, and recognizes that one sin can vary from another sin in gravity and that the state of grace can be lost. So from a lived practical experience, uh, it, they're very, very, very different in mm-hmm. how you orient yourself in the world. Um, now, uh, the Catholic Church also teaches that God offers sufficient grace to everyone that they might be saved. Uh, clearly, the Calvinists don't think that. They do not teach that God offers sufficient grace to everyone that they might be saved. God offers uh, uh, efficacious grace uh, only to a few and sufficient grace to no one. Mm. And in fact, in 17th century Calvinism, they take it one step further and argue that not only does God not offer grace to everyone, but that Jesus did not even die for everyone. The doctrine of the limited atonement, of course, is a deeply Calvinist belief that Jesus only died for the sins of the elect. The sins of the elect were imputed to him on the cross. His righteousness was imputed to them. And so you, if you're a Calvinist, a consistent Calvinist, you literally cannot say to an unbeliever, Christ died for you. Wow. You could only say that to those that have become believers, because only with respect to them would you know. Mm. Right. So there are some real major differences in the way you live out your practical Christian life. In terms of the philosophical conundrum of God's providence and, and human freedom, many different answers have been given in Catholic history. And, and why would God grant efficacious grace to some but not to all? Uh, and as you may be aware, there's, there, there's more than one answer to that question in the Catholic theological tradition. So the Thomist tradition takes a line that on that respect, in this question only, is much closer to Calvinism, says that God grants efficacious grace to some people and not to everyone for reasons that are inscrutable and only known to God, right? Um, There are others, the Jesuits uh, following uh, Molina, the Molinist tradition, argue that God can can discriminate based on his foreknowledge of counterfactuals, meaning God's knowledge of how grace will be used if offered uh, impacts his decision to grant grace to one versus another. So it's still grace that enables good works, so it doesn't come from human beings, but that God's choice is not arbitrary. Now, the Dominicans don't like that view for all kinds of reasons, Uh but both of them are allowed within the Catholic tradition. Okay. Matthew, thanks so much for your question from England. We appreciate hearing from you today. Call to communion on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Coming up on tomorrow's edition of Call to Communion, we've got a great mailbag program for you. And then on Friday, we're going to be bringing you calls on our listener comment line. Why am I telling you all this? Well, today is the day to get that question of yours on the air and answered. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait till next week. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 288 
3986. Here's an email we received from Jesse. How would I lovingly counter this comment from a friend? Here's the comment. One can still be a follower of Christ without being a Catholic. Christians used to pray in catacombs and caves and cemeteries before. They don't need the opulence of a church structure and Catholicism. We can only be saved by believing in Jesus, the one true Christ, following his teachings and praying to the Father God through Jesus. Praying to saints and Mary will not mean we can be saved. Uh, David, your insight will be appreciated. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah, so a lot of claims here that are interesting, and uh, there's not just one question. First of all, the claim that you don't have to be Catholic to be a follower of Christ, I agree with that. The Catholic Church teaches that. You can you can follow Christ and not be a Catholic. Um, but then he goes on to say ancient Christians worshipped in catacombs, caves, and, and, and cemeteries. They didn't need the opulence of the Catholic Church. Now that one really interests me. <laughs> because do you have any idea why Catholics worshipped in caves, catacombs, and cemeteries? And do you know who those do you know who who those Christians were who worshipped in those places? So first of all, we know we know a lot about this from ancient Christian history and archaeology. The Christians that worshipped in seminaries were there specifically I said seminaries, cemeteries. Yes. Were there specifically to venerate the dead. Okay. And what you call the opulence of the Catholic Church actually grew from the tradition of building shrines in honor of the martyrs. Mm. So before there was a church building there were, in fact, uh, uh, constructions built to honor and to venerate the martyrs where the faithful would go to offer the sacrifice of the Mass and to commune with the dead. Mm-hmm. All right. That practice is so widespread in antiquity that you literally cannot find Christianity anywhere in the world without it. It's not until the 16th century that you find widespread opposition to the veneration of saints and martyrs. Um, so in antiquity, you're more likely to find people disagreeing about whether Jesus is God than about the propriety of offering veneration to the saints and to the martyrs. And if you don't believe me, go read some ancient Christian history, people like uh, Peter Brown in his book, The Cult of, uh, of Saints in Latin Antiquity, or uh, Ramsey McMullen's work on the Christianization of the Roman Empire, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So those people were Catholic. Now, how about the ones that worshipped in caves? We had those too. They were called Catholic religious. Right, and so go study the history of ancient Egyptian monasticism. Go read about Anthony the Great, or go read the the uh, the, inst- the uh, conferences of John Cashin, um, and you'll find out why Christians went and lived in caves so they could practice the ascetical life um, in imitation of the hidden years of Christ in the desert, because they believed very specifically that they were not saved by faith alone, but it was necessary for them to attain the the purification of their interior life in order to see God. So both of these practices were. Uh, uh, deeply implicated in some of the beliefs that you reject about Catholicism. Um, let's see, you can, um, praying to saints and Mary avails nothing. Well, that's not true. And, and Scripture gives us clear evidence that the prayers of the saints on our behalf are efficacious. So Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that the saints in heaven offer our prayers to God. That's, that's the explicit teaching of the text, that they offer our prayers to God. Um, God actually tells the companions of Job don't pray to me. I won't listen to you. Ask my servant Job. He'll pray for you, and I'll listen to him on no. your behalf. All right, so the idea of the righteousness of the few availing uh, on behalf of the many is a deeply biblical principle that pertains not only to this life but also to the next one. Um, can you follow Christ without the Catholic Church? Yes. But if you do, you will miss some really helpful and important stuff. Yeah. Right? And that's the Catholic position. You will miss some really important and helpful stuff. Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ intended, 
he stated his express intent to establish a church um, uh, through which all people could be saved. And so the idea that you can be saved without the church, even though church actually teaches that you can be saved apart from formal membership in the church, you're ignoring an institution given to us by Christ himself for a reason. All right. And uh, Jesse, thanks so much. We hope that's helpful for you and for your friend as well. In a moment, we're going to talk to Nancy in Roscoe, Illinois. Also, Victor in Denver. A couple lines open for you. Two lines right now at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Glad you could join us on this Wednesday afternoon. Here we are in Lent. Lent. We are here in Advent for you. This is a, this is a very Catholic season. I was thinking about the you know the, the two seasons that are so so in, ingrained in us as Catholics, uh, and and so we want to help you out with this. You can go to EWTN's website, EWTN.com, and then go to the radio page. And then go to scheduling, and you'll see all the wonderful Advent programming that we have lined up for you over the next couple of weeks. Again, EWTN.com slash radio, and then uh, go to our Advent section. We've got all kinds of great stuff for you. All right, and congratulations, by the way, going out to another member of our EWTN radio family, St. Jude Catholic Church that is in Mansfield, Texas, with their radio station KYRE, now celebrating nine years with EWTN. Congratulations to Joel Rodriguez, everybody at KYRE in Mansfield, Texas, from your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Nancy is a first-time caller in Roscoe, Illinois, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Nancy, what's on your mind today? Hi, um, thanks for taking my call. Sure. So I listened for um, a while. I am finally in RCIA. Uh-huh. And really excited about it. And I grew up Pentecostal, so you know how the the, the sides go at each other, right? And how Pente- uh, and Mr. Anders, I'm finally it's hitting me that you were Protestant before as well. So I would really love to hear how you got came to understand the Eucharist as being truly Jesus, because it, it's baffling me. And I want to believe it. I want to understand. I want, but I want to know like what step? How did you? How did you get there? Yeah, thanks. So let let me draw an analogy to when you were Pentecostal. So when you were Pentecostal, I presume that you spoke in tongues, or many people that you knew spoke in tongues, whether you did or not, but probably you did as well. And everything phenomenological about that experience says this is a kind of a natural neurolinguistic process of people articulating incoherent syllables in a random pattern, but that's highly repetitive over and over. Like, to an outsider walking in, observing Pentecostals speaking in tongues, they, they, they would not say something supernatural is going on here. They'd say something odd is going on here, but not necessarily supernatural. And yet you sort of superimposed on top of that the belief that this is the Holy Spirit actually at work. And that's a faith claim that you made um, that I have no opinion on for present purposes. But I, I, what I'm doing is I'm trying to draw an analogy where something in your experience already, you had something that phenomenologically had one appearance, and yet through an act of faith, you were able to as- ascribe a significance to it that would not be visible to somebody else. Okay, And 
though the Eucharist is far and above a greater gift than the gift of glossolalia, there's something that's analogous, it's just an analogy, but something analogous going on. We have something that has the appearance of bread and wine, but the Church teaches that there is a transformation that takes place um, that causes this to be something other than what it seems, causes it to be something other than what it seems. Lots of things in reality are other than what they seem, right? Yeah. And sometimes we have to take on faith or authority that something isn't the way it seems. I mean, if you've studied physics, you know that material objects aren't what they seem. If you really get down into the nitty-gritty of what is matter, it's something so bizarre and abstract that you could never intuit it, right? Um, and uh, again, that's just an analogy. What does the Church say about the Eucharist? So this helped me a lot. When I, when I actually got down to the definition and I studied the words and the concepts of what they meant, I realized that the Church's claim, while it's certainly not something that reason can verify, was so highly qualified that it made, it made it somewhat less absurd to me, right? It still seemed a little bit absurd, but, uh-huh. but at least I understood, okay, they're, they're qualifying this in a way that mitigates that. Um, so we don't teach... Catholics do not teach that Jesus is physically present in the Eucharist. We teach that he is substantially present in the Eucharist, and the two are not the same. What's the difference? Well, physical presence is the presence of Tom Price in front of me right now, where I could see him, and, you know, if I took a machete and cut him in half, I could get half of Tom over here and half of Tom over there. If I put him on a scale, I could weigh him, and, you know, I'd weigh up all... I don't know, 170 pounds of Tom or whatever he weighs, you know, five foot ten or however tall he is. I could get all of that in physical presence. Jesus is clearly not in the Eucharist in that way, and and uh, we're not. He's not there that way. So his weight isn't there. You know, the sacred host doesn't weigh 170 pounds of Jesus. His height isn't there. Um, you know, I'm guessing that Jesus had brown eyes. His brown eyeness isn't there. None of those properties that we would ascribe to physical presence are there. Only the substance. Well, what do we mean by substance? Well, substance is whatever it is that makes a certain thing to be the kind of thing that it is. Right? So I could talk about the substance of my dog that's not reducible to any one of his particular parts. It's not his tail. It's not his feet. It's not his legs. It's not his slobbery tongue. You know, none of those things is the dogness of the dog, the substance that makes him to be a dog. And you could remove any one of them, and you'd still have a dog. Abstract away all those particular physical properties and just retain the substance without any of those accidents, without any of those properties. Now, obviously, this is something that I can only do in my imagination. Sure, sure. Do that. That's what the Church says is present there. All right, so it's a very, very particular mode of presence. It's not like other kinds of presence, which removes some of the objections against it. So, for example, some people say, well, you Catholics are cannibals because you're eating Jesus. And I say, well, no, no, because, see, with the cannibal, what you're doing is you're actually killing a victim, you're dividing up the parts, uh, you're masticating and digesting the victim such that the, you know, the various nutrients in the victim are metabolized by you to become part of your body. We don't claim that any of that happens with the Eucharist. So if I break the host in half, I don't get half of Jesus here and half of Jesus there. Um, When I consume the sacred host, and it ceases to have the appearance of bread and wine, the Church teaches that the real presence also ceases. 
And so I'm not eating it so that I can metabolize, say, Jesus's fats and proteins into my physiology. That, that's mm. not that mode of eating. It's a different mode of eating. Sure. So it is, it is a very unique thing that we would only know from Revelation. It also helped me to understand the purpose of the Eucharist. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard about Holy Communion, but you may not have heard about the sacrifice of the Mass, which the Church teaches is the main point of the thing, is the main point of the thing. The sacrifice of the Mass means that we have the very same victim who died on Calvary. We have him present on an altar of sacrifice in the Mass, but in an unbloody manner. It's now the glorified Jesus who will never die again. And we can recapitulate what happened at Calvary, but in an unbloody manner, offering the very same body and blood to Christ, of Christ, to God the Father, so that the Mass becomes the memorial of what happened on Calvary and the occasion for us to offer ourselves along with him. And so, you know, we don't abstract the real presence and the act of communion from the whole course of the Christian life and Christian discipleship, which is ultimately ordered towards making ourselves one with Jesus' self-offering, which is figured there before us on the altar, you see. Mm. So uh, all of that, the more I learned about the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist, and I put it in the context of the Church, of the sacrifice, of the Christian life, um, I won't say that it became perfectly intelligible to me, because there's still a great element of mystery there, but it became much more agreeable to me, and I was able to accept the element of mystery. Nancy, is that helpful for you? Very, very, very much. You very answered a question I was going to ask, and you already you got ahead of me, so wonderful. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Very good. And you can always check out the podcast if you want to uh, review some of the things that uh, Dr. Andrews was just talking about. Go to EWTN.com slash radio and look for the word podcast. We'll get all set up there for you on that. Let's go now to Victor, a first-time caller from Denver, listening on the great Catholic radio network. Hey, Den- uh, Victor, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yes, sir. Um, I had a question for you. Um uh, you know, there's a verse uh, in the Bible. I'm driving right now, so I cannot quote you the exact uh, 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 verse. But uh, paraphrasing here, Jesus says, um, uh, "You can blaspheme against me, and you will be forgiven. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, you will not be forgiven." When I was younger, I'm 60 years old now. Again, I'm talking 25 years ago, whatever. Um, I blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, but not like what you would think, like a simple uh, curse that comes out like a sneeze. Uh, It was a conscious, ceremonial, uh, you know, I cannot call it an accident or, or you you know, misspeaking or anything like that. So, therefore, I haven't been in the church for, you know, for all these years. And... um, I was wondering what the church's stance is uh, on the subject. Oh, yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you called me. So here's, here's what the church advises, and here's what I advise. If you are willing, if you are willing, you said you're in your car, um, pull up your, your, your map, Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever it is, find the closest Catholic church, Set that as your destination. Go there. Ask for a priest. Tell them you've been out of the church for so many years that you'd like to make a confession and come back. Go in. Confess that you use this kind of language. 
you will be instantly absolved. You'll be forgiven, provided you're contrite and sorry about it. And you will be back in the church. And you can do that today. You can do that right now. I mean, as soon as you find a priest, you can make your confession and be forgiven. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven, you have not done. That sin is what we call final impenitence. That is the unwillingness to seek reconciliation with God up until the very last moment. You haven't done that. You're, the fact that you want to be reconciled, that you're calling me to ask me the question, proves that you haven't done it. Yeah. So go make a beeline for that Catholic Church, find that Catholic priest, make your confession, and you're back in. Like they say, Victor, get her done soon as possible. Uh, Victor, thanks so much for your call. We hope that is helpful for you as well. If you missed part of our program today, you can always check out the Encore, which is going to be tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast, or check out the podcast that we were talking about earlier by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. Once you're there, you'll see the word podcast. That's all you have to do. Click on that. We put those in alphabetical order. Just scroll down a little bit till you get to the C's. That's where a call to communion is sitting, waiting for you to uh, check it out. Let's go now to Joe in Kennewick, Washington, listening today on YouTube. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, I was wondering your take, Dr. Anders, on uh, a subject called the illumination of conscience. Uh, Father Mark Beard, if you know or understand who he is or know who he is, uh, he's passed away in a car accident in August, but very good priest. But anyway... He had recommended that book, The Warning, to his congregation, and I picked up on this one of his uh, homilies and did myself, and it talks about the illumination of conscience and how time will stand still, the mini-judgment, if you will, uh, stuff like that. What's your take on that? Yeah, what thanks. You... I really appreciate the question. So uh, it is a popular belief among some Catholics that at some point in the near future uh, there will be a supernatural event where the Holy Spirit simply reveals to every soul, to every conscience, uh, what they've done wrong, and people will see themselves as they really are and be brought face-to-face with their, with their sins and their guilts and their need for repentance, and, and, and great consequences will ensue. Um, I, I don't think much of that. I don't think much of that, and, and I'll tell you why. St. Paul tells us that since the creation of the world, and I'm quoting the Bible now, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So I, I think that, like, the, the, the moral duty of the human race— I mean, there are some cultural variations, to be sure, but, but in, in, uh, in, in large brushstrokes— the sense that we are moral animals who owe, you know, a, a, a kind of moral duty to one another and to God, I think is already imprinted on the conscience, and the evidence of that is visible in the whole history of, of religion and philosophy for the, the entirety of human history, right? Um, so I, I don't think this eschatological illumination is at all necessary, right? I, I think we, we have that. St. Paul says it's already clearly seen what our moral duty is, so that people who don't do that are without excuse. Now, there, there is a doctrine of illumination in Catholic spiritual theology, but means something very different from this. It means something very different from this. Um, it is the belief that when you have become Catholic, when you have 
entered into the church, you begin to practice your sacraments, you have practiced ascetical disciplines so that you have purged yourself of your immoderate attachments, um, then there is a second stage of the spiritual life that is a grace. It comes by the Holy Spirit where your vision begins to change and you begin to see the world and the faith in a different light. Um, Pope Francis puts it this way. He says, you come to see the world through Christ's eyes, right? And so it's not it's not about learning some specific piece of propositional content. I don't learn a new fact about reality through this illumination. I, I gain a different perspective on reality. So it's perspectival knowledge rather than propositional knowledge. Mm. Uh, I come to have different values. I come to be oriented in the world in a different way. And it's the first stage in what we call um, infused contemplation, the supernatural contemplation that is the... That is the uh, the purview of the saints and the mystics, then that is followed in the spiritual life by the unitive phase where our hearts uh, come to be in union with the will of God. Our will comes into union with the will of God, and that's the perfect sanctity of the saints. So there is a place for illumination in the Christian church. St. Paul writes about it in the book of Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the height, the depth, the width of the love of God that surpasses knowledge, see, knowing in some way that's not just mere propositional knowledge. Um, and, uh, and so we do have a, an illumination to look forward to, but it's present within the heart of the Church and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it's been there from the beginning. It's part of sacred Scripture. I don't have to wait for some kind of dramatic, uh, apocalyptic, apocalyptic eschatological fulfillment these things are already available to us from the light of nature and for the illumination of the Holy Spirit that is the patrimony of every Christian. Joe, we appreciate your call from Kennewick, Washington today. Thank you so much for it. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Lee now, a first-time caller in northern Minnesota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Lee. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Uh, my cousin was baptized Catholic as a child, and recently got rebaptized at a non-denominational church, and I'm wondering, could since she had no foreknowledge that it was wrong, could it have the same effects as her original baptism? And how would you handle a conversation with something like that? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So here is an analogy. Um, let's say you become a naturalized U.S. citizen. You know, you study the book, you take the test, you, 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 know, you swear the oath, and you become a U.S. citizen. What would happen if you did it again? Mm, nothing. Nothing. Like, like, you're already a U.S. citizen? You know, if, if I approached the U.S. consulate or whatever the office is, I don't know which office you go to, I am a natural-born U.S. citizen. I said, I want to become a naturalized U.S. citizen. They'd look at me like I had two heads. <laughs> it's like, well, you know. You're already a citizen, Anders. What are you doing, right? Uh, baptism is the right of entrance into the body of Christ, which is the Catholic Church. If you are validly baptized, then you're in. Mm -hmm. you, you can't get in twice. And we have a fancy way of talking about this in theology. We talk about there being a, 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 a baptismal character that's imprinted on the soul. It's there permanently. You can't, you can't unimprint it, mm. right? Um, so, so the... Could the second baptism have the same effect as the first? No. No, it can't, any more than I could, you know, you could become a naturalized U.S. citizen twice, right? It doesn't work that way, yeah. okay? Um, now, I concede that there are people who don't know what baptism is, 
for whom this ritual might have a powerful psychological benefit. Mm-hmm. I mean, for many of them, it amounts to nothing more than a kind of consecration where they just sort of rededicate themselves in their life of Christian fellowship, and that may be of some value to them, particularly if they don't know sacramental theology and don't understand that what they're doing is wrong. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't have the effect of the first baptism. Okay. Lee, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. We're going to try to get to as many calls as possible today. Here is Robin now in Buckley, Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Robin, what's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I was uh, attempting to help a young lady, young family, who were asking for help on Facebook, uh, trying to get a hold of our priest. We, Our priest serves three different towns, and so he's kind of hard to get a hold of unless you catch him at Mass. Sure. I told her the best way, she wants to have her house blessed, and she wants to join the church, uh, join the parish, and she wants to uh, enroll her children in religious education. So I told her I thought the best way to do that would be to go to Mass and catch Father after Mass and give him your phone number, and, you know, then you guys could make a make a make uh, an appointment, you know, to sit down and do these things. Uh-huh. And she proceeded to tell me that it was directly in opposition of the catechism for her to conduct business on Sunday. Is that business? Is that, I mean, is that going too far on my part? I mean, I, if, I don't know. So let me get this straight. Who's right? She thinks, she thinks that making an appointment with the priest to get her house blessed would be contravening the Sabbath commandment? That's what she said. Oh, that, she's wrong. Yeah. She is big time wrong. All right. Let me read to you what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says about refraining from work on the, on the Lord's Day. On Sundays and other holy days of obligation, the faithful are to refrain from engaging in work or activities that hinder the worship owed to God, or the joy proper to the Lord's Day, or the performance of works of mercy, or the appropriate relaxation of mind and body, or family needs. So, you shouldn't work on Sunday if... It prevents you from worshiping God, helping the poor, relaxing, or spending time with your family. That, that's, that's the kind of work that you for, refrain from. And there are people whose economic situation is such that they cannot help but work on Sunday, and the Catechism recognizes those as well and does not condemn them for that. So there, there's, there's nothing in the Catholic faith that would prevent you from arranging for the proper work, worship of God on the Sabbath. In fact, that is an enormously appropriate day on which to do that. Yeah, sure. Let me just, throw, uh, Robin, thank you so much for your question. Let me just throw a, a hypothetical to you, David, here. Let, let's say that it, we're, we're coming up on a Sunday, and I'm planning to go to Mass just like normal, no problem. I will be spending some time with my wife and doing other good things. However, it's, it's going to be a beautiful day on Sunday, but it's going to be rain before then and rain after then. Can I cut my lawn? Can I spend a half hour or an hour cutting my lawn? You can cut your lawn, Tom. <sighs> what a relief. I'm not sure if that's actually a good answer, because <laughs> I'd rather just lay on the couch and, you know, relax a little bit. Although, but that does answer the question. Thank you so much. Here's you know, one. For, for me, cutting the lawn can be relaxing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, know, you get out there, I can put on a pair of headphones, um, listen to some music, you know, and, <clears throat> I, and I've got a legitimate excuse to drown out everybody else and everything else in reality. Gotta love that. Question now from 
Bob in <clears throat> excuse me, Bob in Arizona, a prominent Catholic apologist, cited a survey in his book that two-thirds of the participants in a Catholic survey did not subscribe to the church's official teaching that Jesus really, truly, and substantially is present in Holy Communion. My proposal is to include the following statement in the Apostles' Creed, which would read, I believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. My question to you is, who should I send this proposal to? Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, let me advise you not to send that proposal, okay? <laughs> um, I guarantee you the Church is not going to change the Apostles' Creed. However, Pope Paul VI did something better, uh-huh. uh, more appropriate. He actually composed the Credo of the People of God for this reason and for similar reasons, to, to specify some of the cardinal Catholic doctrines that, uh, that people were maybe forgetting and they ought to believe, and transubstantiation of the elements is one of them, okay? Um, but the Church is not going to change, fundamentally change the liturgy in this kind of profound way because of these kinds of issues. Um, I, I think it's inadvisable for another reason as well. This is my personal opinion. Okay. I do not think that disbelief in the Eucharist flows f- from ignorance of the Church's teaching. Because there are plenty of people who know what the church teaches and don't believe it, yeah. right? I think that it has more to do with the culture of Catholic life and the ability to live the Catholic faith generously and effectively in a, in a way that it witnesses to the world that it changes lives and makes a difference what you believe, right? And, and when we draw people into that kind of vibrant, living Christian fellowship, people will believe—look, uh, people will believe anything if you love them. You know, and the sure. sociology bears that out. Yeah. Right. So I, I think the solution to the problem of Catholic faith and Catholic teaching is for Catholic ministers, and I'm including lay ministers in that as well, uh-huh. uh, and members of the Catholic faithful, to to generously and faithfully live the Catholic faith with and for their neighbors in love. That's the way to help them come to faith. Very good. And in our final seconds here, this one from Philip: If a person died with mortal sin on their soul. Is there a benefit for them to have masses said for them? Um, well, they're not going to get out of hell in consequence. I see. Right. So the, no mass is ever wasted, no prayers ever wasted. Right, right. But, but you can't pray someone out of hell. Okay. Well, we do thank you uh, for that question, Philip, and for all the great questions that we received today. Looking forward to our next visit. We'll be live again on Monday. Now, tomorrow we've got a great mailbag for you, uh, and then on Friday... Um, which is, don't forget, Holy Day of Obligation. Go to Mass on Friday. Uh, We have a wonderful program with all sorts of questions that have come in during the overnight hours on the EWTN listener comment line, so be sure to join that. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. See you next time right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. I'm Tom Price. Have a wonderful day. We will see you next time. God bless.